0: If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to First uh, Peter chapter three, and we will uh, in just a moment take a look at uh, those seven verses. We are beginning a, a new series that's it's, um, it's going to be this week and the next three weeks, and it's entitled "Everyday Grace." And so. In order to talk about everyday grace, uh, I've got to start out by giving you a foundation of what grace is, and then we're going to move into uh, how we're going to apply that in certain relationships, and today we're going to talk about with husbands and wives. A definition of uh, of grace is it's undeserved favor and generosity, undeserved favor and generosity. So when you think about grace, you think about this particular uh, definition. So I'm getting something, some type of favor, and I don't really deserve it. But then also, I'm getting it generously, and so it's uh, it's grace is doing something over and above. And see, God is the one that initiated grace. He's the one who defined it. He invented it, and it all started back. And I'm going to just walk you through this in Hebrews chapter nine, Hebrews chapter two, verse nine. In Hebrews 2, verse 9, look what it says. It says, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. Jesus, he's the son of God. He came to earth. It says he made him a little bit lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, that means Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone by God's grace, by his undeserved favor, by his overflowing generosity, he allowed Jesus to taste death for everyone. You say, well, what does that mean? He tasted death for everyone. Well, look at Romans 3. In Romans three, twenty-three through 25, this is what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us, every one of us. Every one of us has sinned, and we've fallen short of this glory of God, short of the holiness of God, and are justified By his grace as a gift. Justified. It means just as if I've never sinned. So here it says I've sinned and fallen short. But now it says that God looks at me just as if I've never sinned. He's given grace as a gift. How did that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. And that is a word that every one of you loves. You know, propitiation. You have been waiting for me to share this word today. And probably next week, I don't know, Tuesday afternoon, you may throw that word out, propitiation. Well, what does it mean? I don't know. Keep going. Uh, By No, propitiation. Propitiation is a word that means to appease or to cover something. And so God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood, as an appeasement. God says all sin needs to be judged. And so Christ came, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and God says that appeases my judgment. It paid for that. It covers those sins. So whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God's given us. I've sinned. We've fallen short from the glory of God. God has presented us this opportunity through his son's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead to receive a gift of grace. And because it says that Jesus tasted death, we do not have to taste eternal death. So where does that take us? At the very end it says to be received by faith. That takes us to the next passage. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you've been saved. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. We cannot be saved from our sins through any works that we do. The only way we can be saved is to accept this gift of grace that God has given us. And we do that by faith, by trusting in Christ, by putting my life into his hands and say, I trust you and I accept the um, death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. I accept that. I accept that grace gift. Well, then when that happens, there's a kind of a second, uh, second chapter of that. And it is this, and it's found in Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's where we just talked about. So if I receive that grace gift, what happens? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see that? Our lives are to be different. We're to put aside ungodliness, put aside worldly passions, live a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So when I receive this grace, I in turn am to live this type of life that then extends grace to other people. But then you go to Lamentations in the Old Testament, Lamentations chapter 3, 22 through 23. It says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, I want you to hold here for just a second. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Everyday grace. Every day, there's new mercies that God has given us. Every day, when you woke up this morning, it says that God's mercies are new every morning. That means that every day, God gives us an everyday grace. And when we have this everyday grace, we have an opportunity to be able to extend that everyday grace to other people. You see, there was an event that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross. And then he took him from the cross, they put him in a tomb. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And when that happened, he conquered sin and he conquered death. And see, there was an event that took place in the summer of 1962 when I was an eight-year-old boy. And I made the decision by faith to receive that gift of grace. And then every day since then, God's mercies have been there for me. Every day since then, I have experienced everyday grace. And the favor and the generosity we've received from God, we can extend it tangibly and practically to others. And so over these next three weeks, we will be looking how to do this in various relationships. But today, I'll be focusing on the relationship of husbands and wives in marriage and how we can extend everyday grace. So if you're married, this would be a great thing for you to listen to. If you are not married and are thinking about doing that one day, this would also be a great message for you to make notes of and to see how can I extend grace every day. In a marriage relationship. Well, to start us off, let me give you a foundation, just some truths about marriage. Number one, the first truth about marriage is God's design is for one man and one woman to be married for life. This is God's design for one man, one woman to be married for life. And the reason we know that that this is true, that his design is for the one man, one woman to be married for life, is because of what he says in Matthew 19. And in Matthew 19, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? We have to, we're getting into discussions about that in today's culture, but from the beginning, he made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. He holds fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he says, marriage is between a man and a woman, and it is to be till death parts them. That's the first truth. But the second truth is this, and that is about divorce. And that is that divorce happens, but it can be prevented. Divorce happens, but it can be prevented. About 40% of first time marriages end up in divorce, and about 60% of second time marriages end in divorce. But it can be prevented. Now, there are some serious reasons for divorce, such as overbearing and unhealthy control issues, addiction issues, repeated infidelity, mistreatment of children, and physical violence. And unless there's a serious attempt at counseling and agreed-upon changes, for safety's sake, divorce might be the best option. And those are some of those that stand out that we say for the Safety of myself and the safety of my kids, I've got to get out of this. But see, what happens is as we see the, hear those stories and we say, well, that must be what most divorces are all about, and that's the cause of them. The surveys and the research that I have seen, none of these reasons that I just gave you are in the top 10 reasons of why people get divorced. I just think about that. It's not infidelity, it's not addictions, it's not violence. And most of it falls under the heading of what's called no-fault divorce. And with, our new, with the no-fault divorce laws, it means that couples can get divorced without proving any particular fault. And so the main reasons from a legal term are irreconcilable differences or irreparable breakdown of the marriage. Irreconcilable differences, uh, irreparable breakdown of the marriage, but there's nothing in particular that's brought up. It just says, hey, this is what's happened. In, in essence, hey, we just don't want to be married any longer. It was interesting. There was a research study done by the uh, Utah State University. And uh, in that research study, with the people that, that they talked to, they looked at the reasons for divorce. And these are the reasons. And these were some top four reasons. Now they were about six or seven. These were right there in the top, uh, grouping over there. And the first reason they said is lack of commitment. 73% of the respondents who got divorced said it was lack of commitment. It was lack of commitment. Lack of commitment by them towards their marriage and even their spouse. Second of all, they said another reason is too much arguing. Number three, is uh, that there was unrealistic expectations. And number four was a lack of equality in the relationship, like someone a little bit overbearing, not feeling like it's a 50 50 a, a type deal. So here's your top reasons for divorce. Well, let me just tell you, every one of these can be dealt with. These are preventable. You see, th- these are things that, that couples can work with. And you know what? If couples will extend grace to each other, all four of these can be handled and marriages could be saved. Half of the people that were divorced that responded to this survey said they wished that their ex-spouse had tried harder to work through their differences. So half the people that got divorced wish they had not gotten divorced and wish they had worked harder through the difficulties that they had. And here's the third and final truth I want you to hold on to, and that's commitment to Christ and commitment to marriage are essential. Commitment to Christ and commitment to marriage are essential. Studies will show that those who are, um, who are practicing Christians, or if I uh, let me put it this way, people that don't just check a census box and say, I'm a Christian, but those who are living a life of discipleship, who are following Christ, active in a church, active in Bible study and prayer, doing the disciplines of the faith. Whenever there's a family that does that, the statistics drop a lot lower as to those who go through divorce. And so this Utah State University survey uh, research, they came back and and they summarized it in this way. Commitment to marriage is clearly a factor. Commitment to marriage is clearly a factor in why couples stay together. Commitment is having a long-term view of the marriage that helps us not get overwhelmed by the problems and challenges day to day. And when there is high commitment in a relationship, we feel safer and are willing to give more for the relationship to succeed. You see, when there's commitment to a relationship, there's a fertile soil for everyday grace to be able to grow. But it's interesting because out of all this research, it came down to something to me, which is kind of simple. And that is commitment to the marriage. It is when a couple gets married, they're committed to it. We're committed to each other. We're committed to the marriage. We're going to try to make this thing work. And when difficulties come and tough times happen, it changes a perspective because there's a safety and a security from each one of the spouses to say, even though we've got this rocky road we're on right now, we're going to stay together. We're committed to this marriage. We're going to do whatever it takes to straighten this out. But for those that do not have the commitment, then it's like, hey, throw out the D card and throw up the flag and we're out of here. So when we think about extending everyday grace. For all of us that are married couples, a foundation is we have to have a commitment to a relationship with Christ and we have a commitment to our marriage to say, we're going to make this work. Okay? Let's do a commitment and let's make this work. Do whatever we can to make this marriage work. So, when you've got that commitment, all of a sudden you've tilled up the soil and it's a fertile soil for everyday grace, to be able to extend everyday grace in the marriage. So we're going to start, first of all, with a wife and how she extends everyday grace to her husband. Okay? I know you guys are looking forward to this. All right. Wife extending everyday grace to her husband. And I'm going to read a passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 that will anger every woman here. Okay? Uh, but Hey, it's I got to do this, okay? I, but I'm going to make it feel. I'm going to make you understand what he's, what Peter's saying here. It starts off and says, "Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, and when they see you're respectful in pure conduct." As Peter is writing to the church, he's saying that some of the wives are married to people who are not believers. So how do those believers become a believer? It is through your actions and it's through your attitudes. And so if you're submissive to the leadership of your husband and he sees your respectful attitude and the purity in your life, it could help win him to the Lord. Well, this is true whether you're married to a believer or not a believer. In Ephesians, it says that wives are submit submit to your husbands even... As the church submits to Christ. And so we've got a beautiful picture there of how the church submits to Christ and says a wife is to submit to a husband. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means to willingly place herself under his leadership. Willingly place herself under his leadership. The word submit, the Greek word is called hupotasso. If you split it, the word hupo means under. Tasso means to arrange. So it means to arrange under. It's a military term to say that you arrange under a particular person. You arrange yourself under the authority of a, of a person. And so what submission is, is when a wife graciously and voluntarily, that's why we put the word willingly in there, graciously and voluntarily lines up under her husband's authority and leadership. She is still to be continue to be strong, but she must bring her strength into place under his leadership. There's nothing in this scripture that says a woman has to change uh, her personality or who she is. It says she can still be a person of strength, but just understand that she comes under that leadership. You see, the church submits to Christ, so also the wife must submit to her husband. God has made the husband responsible. Because the Bible says, it says the husband is to be the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So men, we're given that responsibility. God has given that to us. That's that's not up for debate. You, you can't sit there and say, well, I don't want it or "or this or that. You may say that, but you got it because that's what God has placed on you. And so ladies, I don't know if you understand this, but every man feels this burden. Every man feels the weight of he is responsible for his household. And with that responsibility carries with it authority. And he needs to have that authority to carry out that responsibility. And many husbands do not lead because their wives will not give them that authority. And what Peter is saying here is that a wife needs to willingly place herself under his leadership. Allow him the ability to lead. And you know, whenever a wife would get to that point where she allows the husband to lead, I believe he'll take it. But a lot, of, a lot of men don't because the wives don't want to give him that opportunity to do that. You see, what you understand is that both the husband and wife are integral parts of a marriage relationship. Both have equal value, just different roles. And when they were created, God created Adam, he created Eve. They were equal. They're all in the image of God. And in the Scripture, I think it's Galatians 3, when Paul is saying, that, hey, whether rich man, poor man, free man, slave, male, female, we're equal. We're all equal. But when we come together in a marriage relationship, somebody has to take the lead. And that is true in any organization. Somebody's got to take the lead. And so in the marriage relationship, the husband is the one who is the final authority for decisions that affect the family. It means that both of them sit down and give equal input into it, but then somebody has got to say, this is the direction that we're going. And that's the husband's responsibility. And so by a wife willingly placing herself under his leadership, she has a voice in it. It's a respected voice. And then he has to come up with a final decision. He may look to her and say, man, you're right on target. That's the direction we're going to go. Or he may sit there and say, "Well, you know, I got to differ with you on this. I just, I just feel this is where we got to go." And unless it's, and if it's not taking you in some unethical direction, then you follow that leadership. Yeah, you know, I always laugh about that story about the man and wife. They got they heard a sermon like this, and they sat down there just getting ready to get married. She says, "Okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do." She says, I will make all the minor decisions and you, husband, you make all the major decisions. And when it came down for their 20th anniversary, he kind of looked at her and says, you know, it's amazing to be married 20 years and not have one major decision in our family. You got to be able to allow that leadership to be able to take place. By being willingly submissive, the wife is extending everyday grace to her husband. You're extending this generosity, this everyday grace to the husband. I'm extending grace to you. I'm following your leadership. I'm trusting your authority. Peter says, willingly, place yourself under his leadership. Number two is this. Display power under control. Display power under control. Look in verse 3. It says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, here again, Peter's not saying, hey, don't braid your hair, don't wear something fancy. He's just saying it's a value system. Do you value the external more than the internal? And he says, what I'm telling to the women is that they need to value the internal more than they do the external. Still fix up. Look as nice as you can. But you need to put the emphasis on the internal. And uh, the beauty of character is vitally more important than the external beauty. But in this, when he says this, he then comes back and says that she should have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, when you read that, your first thought is gentle and quiet spirit. I understand. I know. you typical man. You want me to stand in the corner, be timid, not say anything. Peter, I can't believe that. No, that's not what he's saying at all. And and if anybody tries to use that to browbeat you, they're just wrong, okay? Then come to me, and we'll browbeat him. (laughs) No, uh, that is not what it's saying at all. It's talking about the spirit that she is to have, and it says it is to be a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle is the word that comes from the word meek. And the word meek is the word that means power under control. Meek is a strong word. It is someone who's got a lot of power, but yet they keep it under control. And he's saying not being pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding your own way. Now, if a woman is going to be submissive to a man's leadership, this would be a natural characteristic that she should have to where she's still got her strength, but she's just not going to be overbearing. She's not going to run over him. But there's going to be a willingness of submission. And then it says quiet. Now, listen, I've been on mission trips with a lot of ladies from this church, and there are a lot of ladies that are not quiet, okay? <laughs> and that's great. That's great. I love those personalities. And if you're outgoing and kind of loud and everything, that's who you are. It's not saying this. It's not saying you not to be this person. It talks about how to make yourself calm and to maintain a state of peace and tranquility. To make yourself calm. And, and have a, a sense of peace and tranquility. So you can be the most outgoing person that there is. But it's saying a person who has this quiet spirit is one that knows when to say and when not to say. And for some of us, included, who have a louder personality that will throw things out like here, sometimes we can throw something out that we go, wish that hadn't gone out. And pull that back in. It says that a woman... And it says that she should have this quiet spirit, to where she understands that there are things that she just doesn't need to say, doesn't need to speak rashly, but but hold that back. And when you're looking at a marriage relationship, you can understand that as husbands and wives, we have fragile egos. Now, you may have a strong ego and a strong self-identity, and at work, you're the man or you're the woman, and no matter what people say, you're, you're okay. But once you get home, it's between a husband and a wife. Our egos are pretty fragile because, see, our wife needs to be our number one priority. And for our wives, our husbands need to be our number one priority. And when the person who's number one in your life says something cutting and critical, it just does something to us. Now, I'm not saying saying something that says, hey, you need to improve in this. No, I'm talking about something that's just cutting. You cut to the quick. It's critical. And when you do something like that, you just destroy the other person. Now, it says that a woman here, that she should be one who is gentle and quiet. And by quiet, it says, got a control there, a, a control of what she says. Because... It's very difficult for her to show any kind of submission if she's constantly being critical of her husband and hitting him at his weakest link, and we know where they are. You've been married any amount of time, you know where your, your spouse's weakest link is. And so Peter is saying, you need to display power under control, okay? And when you do that, it, doesn't, it, it means you can get angry and you can argue, that's going to happen. That's marriage, okay? You try to bring people together. There are going to be times where you get into arguments. You can even uh, you know, get, get a little angry and argue. But you just extend everyday grace and maintain your respect for your husband. You can argue without being argumentative. And you can fight fair. Then the very last thing is to respect him. Is respect him. Every man wants respect. In Ephesians uh, 5.33 it says, Let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. And they used in here in verse 5, it says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. All right. So ladies, that's your homework assignment. <laughs> hey, Lord. No, they're not, you don't have to call him Lord. You don't call him master. Uh, it's a word that really means sir. It's a word of respect. And so it's not sitting there saying that she sits there and, and every day would say, Lord Abraham, how are you doing? It is that when she talked to him and about him, there was respect. Okay? There's respect. And it says, and you are her children. And if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. It says here that there is to be respect, that you respect your husband. Her attitude, Sarah, was one of a loving submission, I mean, think about it. I mean, they've got the good life. They're, they're living there and they've, God's, they've already got a lot of good blessings and they're hanging out with family. And then God comes and speaks to Abraham first time ever. And he says, I want you to pack up your bags and move to a land that you don't know about. I want you to go into uncharted territory. I want you to live a nomadic life rather than the settled life that you have here. Do you think that when he heard this voice of God that he just went back and told his wife Sarah, hey, pack up the tents, we're moving out of here? No. I am thinking he's sitting down with her saying, you are not going to believe what just happened to me. I heard a voice from God. She says, who's God? He's got to begin to talk through what exactly happened. And he says, and he is calling us to pack up our stuff. You know how comfortable we are? You know the home that we've built? He's asking us to leave that and do a nomadic life and we're going to be going somewhere else. Where are we going, Abraham? I don't know. Great. You're asking me to pack up my home, my family, and go where we don't know. Yeah. Okay. And she follows him. And he's talked about, she was a woman of submission that followed him. And Abraham, oh, Abraham, one of the great men of faith, did, did he make all the perfect decisions? Not at all. There's a couple times in Scripture where it talked about bad decisions that he made that almost got him killed and almost got his wife defiled twice. But you see, she stayed with him. She extended grace to him. And so when you think about extending grace, you praise him for the decisions that he makes that are right and you're gracious in his bad decisions. And so through these godly internal motivations and actions, you're extending everyday grace. Grace. And so, ladies, this is what I'm asking you to do. What this is in Scripture, just we extend everyday grace to our husbands, okay? Everyday grace. But you see, men, we also need to extend everyday grace to our wives. Now, Peter had to give six verses, but he just gave one for the men. Uh, But he used a word in there that is frightening. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Who can understand her? (laughs) Live with your wives in an understanding way. Are you kidding me? Live with your wives in an understanding way. All right. So how do we do that? This is how we extend grace to our wives. Number one, understand what blesses her and distresses her. Understand what blesses her and distresses her. A woman's greatest needs are security and affection, security and affection. If you take nothing else out of this message, write down security and affection. Anytime within the relationship her security is threatened, you know she's gonna have some problems. Anytime she's not receiving affection, you know that you've got some problems, security and affection. She desires to have a husband that understands her and loves her. Get beyond the surface level and know your wife at a deeper level. You say, well, how do you know what blesses her and distresses her? How do you know? You know by trial and error. You try to listen to her, and then you take this step over here. And you know what? You take the step over here, and it was the wrong step. And you'll find out. You'll learn quick, okay? And when you understand that, you file it. And you say, don't do that again. And then you step over here, and all of a sudden you find out, don't need to do that. You file it. And over the years, you learn this is what blesses her and this is what distresses her. Does that make sense? But the only way you can do that is to give her time. It takes time to learn these things. And every man, no matter how long you've been married, we still mess up. Is that true, guys? Because there are sometimes I'll take this step and I'll head down that path and I'll hit myself. I say, why am I doing this? This is not the right thing to do. This is what would distress her. I shouldn't have done that. And you learn from it. You got blessing, you got distressing. But it takes time. And so it says you live with her in an understanding way. To do that understanding way, to dwell with her in this agreeable, understanding way, you've got to understand what blesses her and distresses her. Number two is you've got to open up to her. You have to open up to her. Now, see, some for guys, this is a little uncomfortable. There are two types of Christmas tree lights. There's a Christmas tree light strand to where when one bulb goes out, the whole strand goes out. Then there's the other Christmas tree uh, lights that when one bulb goes out, the rest of them stay lit. Women are the ones that when one bulb goes out, the whole strand goes out. And I mean, when something comes up that's sort of uncomfortable in the marriage and there is some conflict, there's some tension, all the lights go down. Because she wants that security within that relationship and that marriage to work. For the man, a light goes out, we compartmentalize. Hey, got a couple lights out. We go to work, we go exercise, and guess what? We come back home, we come back home, say, hey, got a couple lights out, but who cares? The rest of them are working pretty good. But when we come home, all her lights are out. And we want to get in the recliner and get the remote and say, hey, life's okay over here. And your strand, your wife, hers are out. This is not a good sign. So what she desires is for you to open up to her. That means to talk to her, guys. And that means that when you come home, the first thing you do is not go to the recliner and the remote, but the first thing you do is go to your spouse. And say, she may be fixing the meal. Talk to her while she's fixing the meal. Blow her away. Help her prepare the meal. Just begin to talk to her. Hey, why don't you after dinner go take a walk and just talk to her? Maybe take her hand and look her in the eye and say, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me about your day. And guess what? She'll ask about your day too. And you guys just talk, okay? And get down into a little bit deeper level to learn more about her. You see, you extend everyday grace of giving time and opening up, and when you extend this gift of grace, of saying, I want to generously give you of my time, and you open up to her, I'm telling you what, she will realize that she is the number one priority of your life, and she'll feel secure in your love, okay? You'll share the couch with her to watch TV, you'll share the table with her to eat a meal, you'll share the bed with her to have romance, share your whole life with her. That's what she wants, okay? open up to her. Number three, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. If there is a rift, a conflict, even a sense of tension in the universe, you and your wife are not fully at peace. And therefore, you will not feel connected. And without peace in the relationship, she will not feel close to you. She doesn't feel you're open and she certainly thinks you don't understand her. We need to get this straight. There will always be conflict in a marriage. There are some newlyweds sitting out here today who this week you may have had your first argument and you are so freaked out. All I can say to you is welcome to marriage and praise the Lord, okay? It's gonna happen. We're two different people. We just are different. We say things different. We see things different. You know, you hear a woman, she stands up and she says, I have nothing to wear. You know what that means? I don't have anything new. A man stands up and says, I got nothing to wear. That means he didn't have anything clean. So we say the same thing. We just mean entirely different things. Men and women, were just different. There's going to be conflict and those things are going to happen. You're two different people. But you see, what a wife wants is she wants a husband to have that same peacemaking desire that she has. Because when there's a rift, Sometimes men will compartmentalize, will move on, and she'll just get over it. But that's not true. What her great desire is to see a man who understands her, lives with her in an understanding way. And when there's a rift in the relationship, she wants someone who has that same desire to be a peacemaker and willing to settle the conflict and get that marriage on strong footing. So this is what I'm asking you to do, men. When I say peacemaker, that means be an initiator. Whenever there's conflict, you be the initiator. And I'm going to tell you this, step up and apologize. Go on and step up and apologize. Any conflict, there is problems on both ends. Everybody's got a little bit to shoulder the blame. I don't care if it's twenty eighty. You step up and apologize for it and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You initiate. You extend the grace and say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Don't sit there and play that game where you're waiting for her. You're the leader. You're the authority. You step up and ask for forgiveness. Now, in reality, in your head, you say, it's 20% me, 80% her. I'm waiting for that 80% to come out over here. You've lost that battle, okay? You, You just step up, and you fess up, and you say, hey, I messed up on this. Will you forgive me? And I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, you've got an opportunity for peace to come back into the relationship. I love I love the statement that I read where remember the wife always gets the last word in an argument. Because if you say anything after that, you started the next argument. <laughs> so so once she said it's done, you ask for forgiveness, you say I'm sorry, you be one who's very uh, real about this, you're not making this up, you know you messed up. And whatever argument y'all had, you both had some fault. You just be the leader and step up and be a peacemaker, okay? Number four. Last of all is this. Honor and cherish her. Honor and cherish her. It says at the end of verse seven, it says, "'You're to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, "'since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, "'so that your prayers may not be hindered.'" Look at that. "'Show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel.'" So what do you mean the weaker? Show honor. Honor means that she's valuable, Okay. You show that she's prized and that she's cherished. Weaker vessel, really two ways of looking at it. One, physical strength. Just the way men are built, mostly men are physically stronger than women. And it says, don't use your physical strength to bully or abuse her or to push to get what you want. But the other part of that weaker vessel, when you put those together, it really means something that shows a lot of value and something that is fragile, honor her because she's a weaker vessel. She's fragile. She's valuable. Men, we're like that bulky, thick coffee cup, the kind you can bang around and nothing ever happens to it, right? A woman is like a fine china teacup. And if you hit it or hit it wrong, you're going to chip it. And when you chip it, it's going to, you lose value because it is so valuable. The cost of that is so much more than if you chip this old, big old coffee mug. You see, it says that you're to treat her as, when I see that weaker vessel, I don't get all nervous on that and go, oh, no, no, no. Weaker vessel means that she's fragile and she's valuable. She's a prized possession. And it says that that's what we're supposed to do. We are to be tender with her. You know, Otis Redding in the 1960s, he said it all, right? He says, you got to hold her, you got to squeeze her, you got to never leave her. You got to, got to, got to get a little tenderness. And he knew what he was talking about. And that's what you need to do. You got to be tender with her, hold on to her, squeeze her, don't ever let her go. And see, there's some of you men out here that say, you know, I ain't never seen a fancy coffee cup. I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know who Otis Redding is. I ain't heard of him. Let me put it into your vernacular. Guys, are you ready? Stay with me. In college football, (laughs) all right, coming down to our level, in the BCS, when someone would win the national championship, they would receive a trophy that is a football made out of Waterford crystal. Now, Auburn's got one. Alabama's got 63. I think that's what they told me. But It's Waterford Crystal, and its value is close to $30,000, okay? You get the opportunity to go to one of those schools, go to the trophy case, open it up, and they said, hey, you want to hold the trophy? You want to hold the football? You go, yeah. And you go in there, and you reach in, hands trembling, (laughs) and you pick up the holy grail of sports, what I have. Get my picture. Have you finished? Uh Uh-huh. You want to put it back? Uh Uh-huh. And you take it and you place it back. That's your wife. (laughs) Think about it. I want you to treat your wife just as you would that. Now, see, some of you are really slow and say, you mean I got a trophy wife? No, I'm... Gosh, you're slow. No. Stick with the illustration, okay? But it is sad because some men would be more careful with an old football trophy than they would with their wife. She is our number one priority. And so we are to show everyday grace to her. I mean everyday. God's mercies are new everyday. We show everyday grace to your wife. And when the wife is showing everyday grace to her husband, forgiving him for dumb things that he says or does or things where he didn't do this or that or, or, or just coming here and saying I'm, I'm willing to be submissive to your leadership and showing that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a power that you've got but it's a power under control and there's this gentle and a quiet spirit and supportive spirit. Oh, That just encourages him so much to lead you. And then while he is understanding you and and, and you're putting time with your wife and you're being open to her and whenever you see conflict, you're the first one to step in and be the peacemaker because the marriage means that much to you too. And then you honor her and you cherish her. Then she is going to respond with such a love and respect for you when you put all this together. It's just that constant everyday grace is coming out. Now, you know, as a pastor, when you preach on marriage, you got to realize Janice and I uh, will be celebrating our 38th anniversary in about two weeks. And But we don't have the perfect marriage. I mean, we love each other, but she's made mistakes. I've made mistakes. And, and, and there are things that, you know, we do wrong. And we've got to work through some things. But it's interesting because a few years ago, there was a picture uh, that was taken. Our daughter Took a picture while we were on vacation of, uh, of Janice and I. And uh, Janice has framed it and made a couple copies. And it's at different spots throughout the house. And whenever she has her quiet time, sits down, that picture's always there. So I just want to show you, show you the picture that was taken. And uh, this is the picture at the beach as the sun's kind of going down. Now, the thing that you've got to realize on that picture that we've got is that um, our body positions. She is turned and she's facing me and talking to me. And guess what? I'm turned and I'm facing her and I'm listening to her. And we're just chilling out right there on the beach doing something that we, that we love to do. And I asked her yesterday about that picture. And I said, so when you think at that picture, what do, you, what do you see? And she says, I love this picture because of three things. I love the place where I am because I love the beach. I love the person that I'm with and I know the person loves me. I love the place where I am. I love the person that I'm with and that person loves me. What more can you ask for? Everyday grace. You do this every day and then you're able to be able to get A relationship between a husband and wife that will be a strong relationship, Christ-honoring relationship to where you can just sit and enjoy life and advance God's kingdom through that. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Father, we thank you for grace that you have given us And, Lord, may we value that even as we would uh, a greatest possession we could have is to know that we can have that relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that in the midst of this message that we will look into our own relationships and see where we are in our relationship to you and that today we could make that call, that decision to receive you as Savior. And Lord, we pray for specifically husband and wife relationships. May the things that we talked about today be great reminders to all of us. And to whether we think our marriage is great or whether it's on the rocks or whether it's just in the middle of the road, we can learn from these things so that we can have an even stronger relationship with our spouse, extending everyday grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.